You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Well, welcome to SpyCast number two. Uh, we thought it would be quite appropriate at this time, since we're doing it here just about uh, on Halloween Day, uh, to touch on the subject, which is near and dear to all the little kids who run around the neighborhood and, and uh, collect candy and so forth, and that's to do something on disguise. And our guest today is Tony Mendez. Uh, Tony Mendez was a senior officer at Central Intelligence Agency for many years and headed their, what was called at the time, their disguise unit. And that had uh, to do with various elements of disguise. Uh, Tony was also, uh, uh, had a, played a critical role in the uh, freeing of the American hostages held uh, during the Iranian uh, uh, revolution in 1979. And Tony played a role in helping uh, those folks to escape. And we thought we would treat that at a later broadcast. So for this broadcast, we're going to concentrate on disguise. Uh, Tony was uh, recognized for his contributions to disguise at CIA. He was uh, uh, recognized as one of the, quote, trailblazers uh, at, the, at the agency for the various innovations that he brought about during his tenure there. Tony, welcome to SpyCast. Thank you, Peter. Uh, happy to be here on Halloween Eve. <laughs> now, I'm taking it for granted. You look just like I always remember you, so you're not wearing anything, are you? Well, it, as a matter of fact, it's not even me that's here. It's, it's my <laughs> okay. wife, Jonna, All right. the other master of disguise. Tony, let me start out by just asking you what you mean by disguise. You know, I think for many people, they hear the term disguise, and right away they think, of, well, that's easy. You, you just have somebody wear a mustache and uh, a, a, a wig that goes with their hair coloring, and, and that's, uh, that does the job. What, what, what do you mean by disguise? Most people, when they think of disguise, they think of uh, a pair of phony glasses and a mustache and a floppy hat. But in fact, disguise is more than that. It's really about the whole person and their whole lifestyle, their, their mannerisms, their pattern of activity, and so forth. So it's not the facial oval. For instance, the Gestapo, when they were trained to follow people, were trained not to focus on their profile, not on their appearance, but on their gait, the way they walked. So that's a very important part of it. That's a, one of those gross features. And so if you're out there on the street, you've got to uh, understand the whole person and their whole pattern of activity. And you, if you take that away and alter it one piece at a time, uh, you have invisibility. 
So you would be looking at, uh, and, and I know your role, for example, was in many cases advising case officers or operations officers, as they're called in the clandestine service, on how to use a disguise, that is customizing something for them and training them, in effect, on how to use it. Quite often we would, we would give them a disguise as sort of a uh, parachute, if you, if you would, something that they would take to them to the field, with, with them to the field. If they found a need for it, then they, they could use it. But the more important activity was actually getting inside of their operations, finding out what they were trying to accomplish, and then building a, a solution to that. And sometimes it wasn't a disguise at all. It, would, it might be an illusion that you were creating or misdirection so, so that you draw a person's attention away from them so they can do their thing. So we've got, of course, we have two movies on the street right now, The Illusionist and, and The Prestige, uh, both of which involve misdirection and illusions. And so. in fact, we, we dealt with illusionists. Uh, a lot of our work was with the field of magic, people in magic who were like us. We were the technical services arm of the espionage uh, business in the CIA. Well, there's a technical arm to the magic world, too, and they're called magic builders. And so we had some of those as consultants, and we learned a lot. The, um, it, it's interesting to hear you talk about advising someone on their case and finding that what they really needed was not a physical disguise, but, for example, an illusion or a misdirection of some kind. In other words, you needed to know the entire context that they were working in. And so often, I think, where uh, technical advisors go wrong or have a problem is they don't understand the context, whether it's disguise or anything else, but specifically in the area of, of uh, identification, modification, or whatever. And for you, a major element was the behavior. Yes, and not only that. Uh, if I came up with a, a, an idea, a solution, very often I would go out and try it myself to make sure that it would work. I remember a case in South Asia where I was asking a fellow to find a dead drop with a disguise on and then put that disguise on in a dark park and then come out and walk down the street and, and, and enter a building. But I didn't know if you could actually find the disguise, so I went out to find it and see if I could put it on. And as I was coming out and walking down the street, I ran into a person walking a big black dog. Well, I suddenly worried about the dog. What would the dog see in the dark? Well, it turns out the dog didn't see any more than the other, than the person did. But uh, it's always good to dry run these things. Yeah. Now, a dead drop, of course, is, is, is uh, by that I'm understanding, a place where you conceal things and it's in a hidden area. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it, a person was assigned to, to place the disguise, which was in a plastic, dark plastic bag, up on, the, up on a wall you know, that backed up to this park. So that was the idea. You could load the drop from inside her residence. Let me just jump forward a little bit. Uh, Tony, I know, like me, much of your, your experience was in the Cold War, uh, although I, I know both of us have, have lectured and been called on to advise people even since then. But let me ask you, I think our listeners would be interested, we identify disguise with, you mentioned the Gestapo, World War II, the Cold War. We're up against a very different kind of challenge today, this whole business of terrorists. And terrorists can come from any country. Um, they often, as you know, are small groups of people, uh, very difficult to penetrate for intelligence and law enforcement uh, folks. What would be the applicability of, of disguise in this broad sense 
against working these new targets? Well, these new targets are in areas that are very hostile. They're, they're, it's sort of a dangerous environment. Uh, we had places like that during the Cold War, and we, we used a lot of disguise techniques in order to get things done. But if you've got a, a very hostile sort of environment like you have in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth, those, that's when disguise really comes in uh, very handy. For instance, something that is used quite often uh, in that kind of a venue is the veil. The veil, it's a, it's a shooting offense if you were to look under the veil. So you have to know that a lot is going on underneath the veil out there. What you do is you pick benign presence that already exists out there on the street in those kinds of environments. Somebody who is young and male alone out there at night is very threatening. But somebody who is old and male or female is considered to be non-threatening. And so you have to know that we're aging a lot of young people so that they look benign. On our streets, people like the UPS delivery man or a woman with a pram or a homeless person are benign presence. In fact, they're almost invisible. So you might choose one of those as your disguise. You have to know that anytime you're going into an environment like that, the the spy's body armor is, in fact, his ability to blend in and be non-threatening. Well, I, think, I think your comments also bring home uh, how important it is for you, the, the technical advisor here, and for the case officer to understand uh, the importance of knowing the environment, of, of knowing what will pass and what won't pass in terms of, of who's looked at suspiciously and who isn't looked at suspiciously. Yes, and quite often we, we do what we call probes, where we would go across that border point first, and we get to know it inside and out, develop, develop a recipe for penetrating that border point or security checkpoint or whatever. And uh, then, then we would be able to, to advise with, with some assurance that uh, how the person should look and behave. And we would actually uh, even do kind of a profile on those, those people at the border who would be doing the checking. We, we would uh, kind of know where they're coming from, what, what station in life they have, and how you should react to them. In some cases, you act uh, like you know what you're doing. Other times, you act uh, like you don't know what you're doing. So your behavior is very important. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. 
Tony, it, it's interesting to uh, listen to, uh, in effect, listen to what you and I are saying to each other because we're both speaking as people who've been involved in operations. And that really, in intelligence work, is, is the offense, if you want, the, the offense side. And uh, as you know, uh, the tremendous concern by many countries, including our own, is the defense. And that is, how do we identify the bad guys? How do we identify people coming across those borders that uh, uh, we want to keep tabs on or possibly arrest or in some way monitor? And uh, so that the challenge... Uh, the challenge now for us is both to be able to use these things offensively, but the defensive side. And I know one of the things that has arisen, and you see it again and again in, in feature articles and so forth, the reference to uh, facial recognition technology. And I assume facial is just one word, uh, one way of looking at that. But what about the new technologies from the defensive or counterintelligence side? Well, facial recognition actually had its roots in something called uh, identification. And, in fact, the name of the disguise unit was not the disguise unit. It was the disguise and identification unit. So we did a counterintelligence uh, function where we actually compared photographs. It was photo comparison of uh, individual A and individual B and see if they were the same person. During the Vietnam War, we did 15,000 facial recognition cases trying to identify MIA and POWs. And those, that was for a humanitarian reason, but we certainly were doing the same with Soviet suspects, if you will. But an interesting story about the, uh, the evolution of facial recognition technology. In 1985, the director of the CIA was a fellow by the name of William Casey, quite a character. He saw a James Bond movie where they had facial recognition technology. They showed a terrorist approaching a border point, and the camera was able to sort out who this fellow was and have his whole dossier by the time he got to the border checkpoint. Bill Casey came to work the next day, called the Office of Research and Development, and said, can we do that? They said, no. He said, then we should be able to. They called me, said, would you support it? I said, yes. All these years later, the the program that was started in CIA went to DARPA and has been researched uh, so that there are systems that are being purchased now for governmental use worldwide. Uh, those all started in our unit and because of Bill Casey and James Bond. So I went against facial recognition technology for National Geographic in 2003 and the, they, they compared something like 85 of my photographs uh, to me to see if uh, if they could uh, recognize me when I made all minor changes. I wouldn't use anything fancy, but just hats and glasses and put tissue in my mouth and stuff like that. And the answer is it's not perfect. Okay. When you said you, uh, two things, uh, you, when you said you went against National Geographic, you mean that was a, 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 a competition of some kind or a test of, of disguise? National Geographic was doing an issue called the New Surveillance, and it was all about the technologies called biometrics. And facial, facial recognition technology is one of those technologies. Biometrics have been part of identification forever. Your photograph is a biometric. Your, your signature is a biometric. Your thumbprint is a biometric. What they're trying to do today is mechanize those with computer technology and imaging technology and so forth. So if you put your hand down on a 
platen, the the uh, the computer can recognize your handprint, or you can do the same with your voice or with your iris in your eye. Actually, the French have used the ear in the same way we've used the fingerprint for ages, and so you know your ears are very sp specific. Biometrics is a threat to spies, but what you have to be able to do is figure out where the weaknesses are and exploit the weaknesses. You you choose the time and the place, and you overwhelm whatever technology is there in some form or other, and that's that's a challenge. I would assume, and uh, it's interesting you refer to the French and, and uh, using the ear, meaning they, in, in dealing with criminals or other individuals, they want to be ab be able to identify. Do you mean they actually do? A close-up photograph, as it were, of the ear with the measurements, or and in relation to the rest of the head—is that what you mean by that? That would be one scenario to do a, f a photo comparison. But you know what the problem with biometrics in in the form of facial recognition or any other imaging is you gotta you gotta hope for the best. You gotta end up with the same angle, the same lighting, and so forth. Otherwise, it's very hard to tell. And um, in the case of the French, they, they were looking for that kind of ID photo. But also, you know, they were actually making physical, physical measurements uh, with the ear. So it would be more of a pathology kind of activity. I, I think if I were listening to this uh, broadcast as a layman, I would have one question that would come to my mind. And that is, and I get asked this all the time, people ask you, to, you know, the relationship of real, real spies and real espionage to Hollywood. And one of the most common things you see in the Hollywood version, if you will, of disguise is these wonderful masks uh, that someone uh, sits down and they reach down under their chin and they peel it up over their head and there's someone totally different. How realistic is that? Well, that was one of the things that we would ask, you know, when people would see Mission Impossible, the old t television show, they would call us up and say, can you do that? Uh, I have to tell you that uh, we set out to do something like that, but you, but you also should know that Hollywood is doing it with lighting and camera angles and editing. The makeup itself takes five hours to put on, and it takes several hours to get it off. That's not operationally useful. Our requirement was to do it in five or ten seconds without any assist. The case officer is in a dark car, and he has to put it on and, and adjust it, it has to look exactly right. And then when he takes it off, he's got to look exactly like he did before. I can't tell you whether we accomplished it. All I can tell you is a chief of disguise who came after me, who is known as John Mendez, my wife, wore a disguise to the White House, to the Oval Office, because the, the director of the CIA wanted to show the president how far we had come. She wore that disguise into the Oval Office, and nobody, including the president, knew except for the director of CIA, Judge Webster. And when she took it off, those who were not p paying particular attention fell off their chair. So we may have achieved it, but yeah. I can't really, I couldn't comment any more than that. Well, that's a wonderful story. I know uh, uh, that, uh, I don't think I mentioned at the top of the broadcast that uh, both you and John are your wife. Uh, we're actually founding members of the board here at the museum, and uh, I'm just I'm looking forward to interviewing Jana as well because uh, uh, I think she has some very interesting insights as a woman, and f and as well from her own particular operational experiences. Um, in fact, let me just let me just pick up on that for a minute. 
uh, in advising, in, in being a technical advisor on to, to case officers, you're dealing with both men and women. Uh, and I'm just going to throw a very open-ended question out to you, and that is what, what difference do you note in advising uh, the, uh, the two genders, if you will, about using disguise? Well, typically males feel that they don't need disguise because it, it tends to diminish their maleness or something. I don't know. <laughs> There's an attitude that you run into is that uh, if you're really good as a case officer, you don't really need anything. You just need your your mind and your spirit and your heart, and just you can go out there and conquer the world. But those who, who got it, understood the the powerful nature of disguise, really were using it to good to good use. But I can say also that females didn't need any persuading because they have been doing this since the beginning of the time. They get it immediately and uh, you, you don't have to do much to help them. Just, you know, hand them this and that and the other and make, make some suggestions. But typically they get it very easily and they, they're very good. Actually, uh, turns out that women make better spies than men because just their their femaleness helps them uh, a lot. Well, that's very interesting. The, um, uh, of course, the, the using makeup and that sort of thing. I also think in, in, uh, in the case of, of the female, case of the woman, there's more that, that that jumps out at you that can be changed right away. In other words, just you know, the wearing of the hair, the, the whole use of makeup, the dress, and so forth. There's much more going on there than with most men. Men in some ways, are fairly boring. Uh, th that is, you know, it's, the, the, it's, it's a jacket and tie, or, or wow, maybe it's a jacket and no tie. That's really something. You know, that's a big deal. And so men, even in going from casual to formal wear to one thing or another, don't really change a whole lot. Uh, women, there's much more going on depending on what event they're going to or, or, or how they're feeling that day. The idea of role-playing, though, fits... Um in very very uh, significantly into all these scenarios and and uh, there's some people be they male, male or female you can hand them 12 pounds of makeup and they and they put it on and and uh, they don't change a bit <laughs> but if there are others you could hand them a stick and say this is a this is a cane build a whole character around it and they can immediately change their nature and their their mannerisms and their look and uh, become somebody else and and that's that's a really good uh, person to work with in operations so part of it is is the actor within some people have more potential in that realm absolutely it's all about demeanor it's it's not the quality of the disguise it's the quality of the bearer it's very important okay well tony why don't we end on that note and i want to thank you very much for coming in today and uh, wish you and john a happy halloween and i look forward to talking to you later about the 1979 hostage crisis absolutely thank you well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.